You're listening to the Fix the Money, Fix the World show on the Bitcoin Made Simple Podcast Network. Here's your host, Luke Mikich. Welcome back to the podcast, guys. I hope you're doing well. Um, I'm here to introduce an episode that I recorded with one of the most underfollowed Bitcoiners on Bitcoin Twitter. He goes by the handle, The Blege, and he did actually reveal his name for us on the podcast today. So we will know him as Adam The Blege. And let me tell you, you guys think I'm bullish? Well, The Blege blows me out of the water. He's got some pretty radical ideas and views of how hyper-Bitcoinization is going to unfold over the coming years. And we discuss, obviously, how that transition is going to look. We discuss hyperinflation and whether we are actually witnessing the early signs of hyperinflation, not just in little smaller emerging markets like Venezuela, Zimbabwe and Iran, etc. We actually think that it could be coming to a neighborhood near you in the Western world. So uh, we obviously discussed that. And we um, discussed something that Blege has some very interesting views on. He sees the Bitcoin circular economy in ways that most people don't see or don't take the time to think about. So we discussed that one really deeply. And I think that's something really important that Bitcoiners really need to kind of think about more because we don't imagine what a Bitcoin standard or a Bitcoin circular economy is going to look like in the future. Um, But the Blesh and I, we talk about it lots uh, in today's episode. Um, So I really hope you enjoy it. We should probably hear from today's show sponsors because guess what? If the world does unfold like the Blege and I think it does and things get more and more volatile, things get more and more crazy, having Bitcoin on an exchange is a security risk. You know what they say, not your keys, not your coins. And if your coins are sitting on an exchange, it's not your Bitcoin. The exchange owns your Bitcoin and you don't own a thing. So I would personally recommend getting your Bitcoin into a hardware wallet. Um, You guys will know I've used them all. I've used a cold card. I've used a ledger. I've used a Trezor. I've used uh, software computer wallets like an Electrum and like the Spectre desktop wallet. And the Bitbox 02 is the easiest uh, beginner-friendly hardware wallet you can use. I would highly recommend you go and get a Bitbox O2. It literally takes less than five minutes to set up. Like there are no excuses for having Bitcoins on an exchange. And I would highly recommend you guys go and grab a Bitbox O2 to take your security seriously. Like honestly, over the coming years, people are seriously underestimating the value of Bitcoin and they, they're just kind of willy-nilly about their security. Uh, it's really time to take your OPSEC a little bit more serious, Bitcoiners. Go and get yourself 5% off a Bitbox O2 hardware wallet if you use the promo code Bitcoin Made Simple. That is Bitcoin Made Simple. No spaces. Go and grab a Bitbox O2, 5% off. Um, our second show sponsor for today is uh, an up and coming Bitcoin conference called Bitcoin Day. Now, you guys have all heard of the Bitcoin conference. Uh, the most recent one occurred in Miami just three to four weeks ago and it went off. Well, Bitcoin Day is an up and coming Bitcoin conference. And uh, like Miami, it is going to be great fun. You can meet all sorts of Bitcoiners there. Uh, the next one is on June 11th. Uh, it is Bitcoin Day Charlotte. So that is in North Carolina. If you guys want 10% off your tickets for the North Carolina Bitcoin Day event, head on over to bitcoinday.io and you can use a promo code, Bitcoin Made Simple. Again, that is no spaces, Bitcoin Made Simple, and you can get 10% off your tickets 
for the Bitcoin day. Um, with the housekeeping out of the way, uh, let's jump straight into this episode with the Blege. I really hope you guys enjoy this one and uh, stay safe out there and keep stacking your stats. Uh, welcome back to the Fix the Money, Fix the World podcast, guys. I really hope you're having a good day. Uh, today, I've got the pleasure of sitting down with someone who I regard as probably one of the most underfollowed Twitter accounts uh, there is on Bitcoin Twitter. And today, you're probably going to find out why. Uh, today, I'm sitting down with uh, somebody who goes by the handle of The Blesh. Uh, Blesh, how are you doing today, brother? I'm good. How are you? How are you? I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me. No, anytime. The pleasure is all mine. I'm really, really looking forward to this one um, because I think you've given more thought to what kind of a hyper-Bitcoinized world looks like than most other people have. And I, I really... I'm interested to pick your brains about that. Uh, but before we jump into uh, how we're going to get to hyper-Bitcoinization and what that's going to look like, I'd love to get your kind of rabbit hole story because um, I think yours will probably be a little bit more interesting than most. Um, so what were you kind of doing before Bitcoin and what kind of led you down to the Bitcoin rabbit hole? Yeah, um, I mean, to, to take my, my life story and, sim and simplify it is, uh, you know, I've been a very creative type um, drawing, you know, did charcoal and graphite drawing um, where I would take like old photos and redraw them in realism uh, that led to photography. Uh, just more of a social person growing up in the restaurant business, having served tables and stuff. Um, I also grew up in a family that has been part of a philosophy school for as long as I can remember. And so uh, I've kind of been raised to have appreciation for certain things like hospitality and service, as well as, uh, you know, awareness and paying attention to sort of the things that are going on around you and the things that are going on inside of you. And, um, you know, it's kind of all led towards this path where um, I guess, you know, I could just fast forward it to COVID. Um, you know, COVID was, was kind of what, was the was what kicked off my interest in Bitcoin simply because uh, I guess a number of things occurred. Um, you know, my income was absolutely destroyed. I had to move back in with my family, uh, my parents in my mid thirties. So um, that was disheartening. But um, you know, I got to collect unemployment and and was like really starting to think about how I wanted to use my money. I had gained an inheritance from my my grandmother passing maybe five years ago, roughly. And um, I spent a lot of that on photography equipment and I had some leftover that I was like, oh, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to waste it. I'm not going to waste it. And it just, it just kind of seemed after a while that it was just sitting there and not really doing anything. Um, not that spending it on my photography equipment was a waste because it's something I do professionally and I've made, you know, plenty of money on it. But um yeah. So I, I was just talking to a friend of mine and we were talking about, you know, I wanted to finally start investing. And uh, this was like, I don't know, Oct September, October, November of 2020, roughly. Um, and, you know, he was he's somebody who I respect his, you know, sort of business acumen, his financial sort of understanding, I guess, at the time. And, um, you know, he had sent me to Funny thing is he pointed me towards a podcast uh, with Tim Ferriss and he was interviewing Naval, if you guys are familiar, but, um, and I got really interested in what Naval was saying. And, and Naval has a podcast where he just, and a twi Twitter that's just, I really appreciate because it's, 
which is all about like, you know, tweet storms, these like little tidbits of advice that kind of can guide you through investment and life. And um, there are a couple of core things that Naval said that really resonated with me. Like um, one of the things was like um, seek foundational knowledge. And so how did this translate to me? Well, basically I was like, I, you know, I needed to get, do some accounting for my business, uh, having an LLC and stuff. And, um, I didn't really know how to do accounting. So, uh, you know, I decided to research accounting and, and gained a, like, honestly, a different understanding of how people view money simply from understanding accounting and how to keep books. You know, um, the idea of money coming in is still valuable, even though you don't have it yet, you know, like the current assets part of the balance sheet and stuff. And I think, um, you know, uh, there's a number of other things that Naval had referred to, but I think what, what it led to was that when I asked my friend about where do you think I should invest, I was initially thinking of stocks kind of like really ex- like interested in watching this whole wall street bets thing go on with uh, GameStop. Not that I hopped in on that or anything, but, um, basically, uh, yeah, he just he was like, yeah, I think you should look at this. And he sent me an article from Lynn Alden that was like fraying the petrodollar. I think she wrote it in May of 2020. Nice. And it just was like 60, 65 pages of like, you know, how the petrodollar system works, which I never understood, um, had no knowledge of, you know, financial systems and stuff like that. Like I had like I understood, you know, why the market collapsed in 2007, 2008 from a very like you know, public sort of opinion standpoint, meaning like I understood it the way most people understand it. Um, But reading that article, like opened up everything. And I I was just, I called my friend back after reading. I was like, bro, this is just a Ponzi scheme. Like dollars are Ponzi. Um, The entire value is backed by the ability to reissue, um, you know, US treasury bonds. And so therefore the value of, of the dollar is backed by the demand for US treasury bonds. And if you don't, if there's no demand for treasury bonds, then it's liquid value falls off a cliff. And they also have obligations to those bonds. So like 2x times they have to print money to like pay for the lack of demand. And that's where you lose your value. And so quite literally, it's backed by demands for US treasury bonds. And this is just this is just something I understood so clearly, you know, Triffin's dilemma it just made so much sense to me. Mm. Um, and then yeah, he told me like, yo, uh, I've been putting my money into Bitcoin. And that's when I got on Bitcoin Twitter. I was reading certain articles. Just, it kind of mainly started from his, because he's not like a Bitcoin maxi in any way. Um, but he pointed me towards Michael Saylor and actually, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, uh, Raul, um, yep. I want to say. With, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is funny because like, you know, I kind of just followed in their footsteps. So I took like an 80% position on Bitcoin and a 20% position on Ethereum. And as I got into Bitcoin Twitter, um, I'm a regular in Toxic Happy Hour with Pubby and, uh, and Anders. And um, the conversation has been awesome. And I realized real quick that like this is a Bitcoin only kind of thing. And it makes real sense to me. My friend pointed, another friend of mine pointed me towards the Bitcoin standard. I read that and then it was on like rabbit hole addiction you know all the way fuck yeah that's that's the rabbit hole man i'm surprised that you only found bitcoin september 2020 that's it's so recent it's so recent only what's that 18 months ago and you're already like i I remember listening to you in spaces in mid 2021 is that when we met 
I, I'm somewhere around there, man. You know, um, I wish I had a better <laughs> track record of that. But yeah, I mean, right around there. Yeah, time flies when you're having fun on Bitcoin Twitter. I can't keep track of when spaces popped up, but I think it was like mid 2021. And dude, that's wild. You'd only been in Bitcoin for less than a year when I, and it was like the, one of the first times I met you on spaces, I was like, fuck, I've got to get this dude on the podcast. Um, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the biggest thing most people misunderstand the fact that. Uh, the money that we all use and the money that we all earn in today, it's literally a Ponzi scheme. Um, and yeah. people are like, uh, what, what? Um, if there's any new listeners who don't understand what the petrodollar system is, I would point you towards a really, really, well, that article firstly is great. Um, uh, the the frame of the petrodollar by Lynn Alden, that's a great read. Uh, but if you want yeah. a shorter, more compressed version, I'd go and read, um, well, I'd go and watch a little 20 minute video that Richard James has put together. I think it's, okay. it's he's, he's done uh, three videos. He's done one on sound money and gold. He's done one on the frame of the petrodollar and he's done another on the anatomy of the state. But so any new listeners head over there, Google um, Richard James frame of the petrodollar, or I can't remember exactly what it's called, something about the petrodollar. And that gives you a great introduction of what that is and, um, yeah, most people just don't understand that our money is a Ponzi scheme. Um, and maybe that kind of ties into uh, what's happening around the world at the moment. All Ponzi schemes collapse. Um, all fiat currencies collapse. I think it's 775 uh, times we've used the money unbacked by gold. It's collapsed or had to be restructured in one way or another. Um, Blege, before we get into kind of talking about hyper-Bitcoinization, I'd love to pick your brains about what you think is going on around the world at the moment in 2022. Because it, we, we look around the world, it's record-breaking inflation all around the world. You've got Sri Lanka defaulting on $50 billion of debt. You've got the Lebanese central bank and government announcing they're bankrupt. It's, it really feels as if things are escalating. And I think 2020 was a big kind of inflection point for me. But um, as you look across the world, what's your kind of macro view? Um, how do you see 2020 and 2022 in particular? <laughs> what the fuck's happening? Yeah, I mean, it's all going to shit. I mean, um, you know, which is what what do you expect when you have this type of money, you know, uh, trying to account for everything? Um, it's I mean, I don't. I don't know, you know, I'm not like the technical savvy macro, like I can tell you like what markets are doing this, what markets doing that. I'll just talk about it from like a money standpoint, like you print a ton of money and you incite price instability, which represents itself because you're printing money and the, and the, and the economic productivity is rarely is basically flat. Um, then you're getting price increases. And when you get price increases everywhere, um, it incentivizes uh, first, it incentivizes productivity because people don't understand that, like you know, this price isn't a rep- this price increase isn't a representation of the devaluation of your money, but they look at it more initially as like, oh, there's an opportunity to make more money. So you have this speculation which increases monetary velocity. People start getting involved in certain things, um, but the best way to make money when you print money is to just gamble on the value of other things. Um, so you're 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 gambling on. Uh, basically how much you're devaluing your own currency essentially versus some other investment asset, whether it's real estate, stocks or anything else. Um, and then you get this, this world, just like it happened in sort of the 30s and stuff under the Great Depression. 
uh, you know, like I work in, I work, you know what I mean? And I know for a fact in, in my industry, I work in the restaurant business that like, and as well as being a photographer, but like in the restaurant business in particular, like they're finding it, it more troubling than ever before to fill staff. Well, why? I think more people are, are speculating with their money. They think they're richer than they really are. And they're going to end up hurt once this whole economy goes belly up. But, um, you know, as, as you increase monetary velocity, this is the thing about accounting, right? Like this is where I like really gained a clear understanding of this. Like as money changes hands, what that means is the current assets aspect part, I'm sorry, the current assets part of your balance sheet, which includes all the income you're going to make over the next 12 months starts to climb. And suddenly you're in the green off of income based off of debt obligations that may not come your way. And so once that, once that you throw a wrench in the tire or a wrench in the wheel or in the motor, whatever the expression is, I'm terrible with expression. But once you throw a wrench in that, um, it all freezes up, you know, like, oh, I don't have my income anymore. So now your current assets on your balance sheet goes straight down because you're, there is no income coming from these obligations that you're holding. And, uh, you know, you get a whole freeze up of monetary velocity and therefore, you know, the overall quote unquote monetary value that's circulating around the world just drops drastically and you have no more liquidity. And so, the you know, and when I say no more liquidity, the other way of saying that is there's not enough money in the entire money supply to pay for the price of the economic productivity that is, is there. And you have this freeze and, um, you know, you can only like bandage up that freeze so many times. Um, it's all built on the ability to like lower interest rates so that you can, again, jack up the current assets part of your balance sheet. If you home, if you, if you're holding an existing bond, let's hypothetically say it's 10%, even though it's been 20 years since that's been the case. And then the U.S. Treasury cuts interest rates on those Treasury bonds to 5%. Well, now all the demand for a Treasury bond is going to your 10% bond because it pays out more. And so that's the Ponzi scheme, right? And so you create this liquidity, but like you, you're, you're fundamentally devaluing the demand for your own, your own debt, your own sovereign debt. And that's the value that's backing the dollar. And so it's just, it's like a bumblefuck. It's like, it's like, what's the point of even talking about it? <laughs> like, it's, it's such garbage. Like, um, and so, yeah, I mean, I've been saying it for, for a year and like, again, I'm not some like macro specialist, but like, I understand how money works. I understand that when you have an out financially, you can trade a financial asset for another financial asset without any loopholes. Then that is, that is like super easy to leave leave value, you know, change your unit of account. I mean, the Turkish lira just depletes in a matter of hours. So it's like you wrote an amazing article about the adoption of technology. And I feel like, and how, you know, as time goes on, the rate at which new technological innovations are adopted increases. And so Bitcoin is just another technology that like, if there was no sort of like knowledge base to have to 
you know, figure out what it is, what is a cryptocurrency. If there was nothing, like you didn't have to understand the system. You didn't, you didn't have to, you know, figure out how to use a, a hardware wallet and worry about the fact that if you like forget 24 words or leave it on a hard drive somewhere, like, you know what I mean? Like if there weren't those loopholes, like Bitcoin would have won already because the way value works in, in these free market competing monetary assets is the second your shit is dying at a legitimate rate, like the second it's going, like it's just depleting and depleting, like you have to get out of there. Like, why would you hold that? What hope is there in, in owning a dying fiat currency? Couldn't agree more, brother. And I think that's, uh, firstly, thanks for the kind words. Um, that's kind <laughs> of, I, I think that's what people are coming to realize. I think for the past 50 years, from 1971 to 2020, the inflation was so low and, you know, asset prices were obviously increasing, but most people kind of felt something was a little bit wrong, but they couldn't tell what it was. And I think 2020, 2021, 2022, I think the problem's really coming out in the open. I think you're watching a once democratic country like Canada freezing the assets of people who, who participate in a freedom convoy. That's what it's called, a freedom convoy. The people didn't do anything yep. wrong. They had their bank accounts frozen. You're watching yep. like the Russian Central Bank have $600 billion of money frozen. You're watching the price of homes, rent and food increase at 30 to 50% a year. And people will come in with the realization that, hang on a minute, maybe the money's broken. And like you just said then, it's such an easy, when you understand the money's broken and you do 10 hours of research, five hours of research, looking into what Bitcoin is, the transition's easy. You're like, oh shit, oh shit. Maybe this Bitcoin thing's interesting. Maybe I'm going to sell some of my fiat into Bitcoin. And I think the fact that Bitcoin's been around for this 10 or 12 years, like it has now, it's kind of, it's kind of gaining this kind of not network effect. What's the word for it? Uh, becomes a, not a Vebel and good, uh, not the Streisand effect, but as technologies hang around for that 10 or 12 years and you get to an adoption point of, you know, one to 5%, generally the rest of the adoption of the technology occurs rapidly. And that's, I think that's kind of where we are with Bitcoin as a technology, Bitcoin, obviously as a money, but I think the 2020s, this decade in particular, you're going to see things change um, a lot. Um, and maybe, I'd love to get your thoughts of, we obviously both agree fiat's a Ponzi. We obviously both yeah. agree Bitcoin's the superior money, which we'll probably get into a little bit later. But how do yeah. you see that transition unfolding? Do you think it's yeah. going to be a little bit crazy? Um, uh, do you, Which countries do you think are going to have a harder time? Yeah. So, I mean, I think a lot of people, you know, I've been having this conversation on Twitter spaces a lot. And I think mm. some of the more accomplished people look at, oh, well, you know, one fiat's going to die and then another fiat's going to die and it's going to be this domino effect and they're all going to fall into the dollar, which kind of makes sense because the dollar is still the most liquid asset as far as like accepted for payments in markets all over the place. Um, and so I could see that happening. I could just, what I can see also happening is before you get to the last domino being the dollar, that all of a sudden the last 10 or 15 dominoes just kind of fall collectively um, into Bitcoin if it happens. Because again, like, 
if these other if these other you know currencies are dying, um, it's just it's they're dying because of debt, and it's not like the U.S. is avoiding any of that. You know, like again, it, it really all comes down to demand for U.S. Treasury bonds, and so we know that like uh, you know countries like China don't really buy these Treasury bonds anymore, and they just collect money, um, and uh, you know, like if you don't have demand for these Treasury bonds, you have to print more money, and. It's not necessarily about how's the U.S. dollar doing against the lira. It's like, how's the U.S. dollar doing against an apple or, you know, like a, a shirt or or gas or, you know, like how how is your money working as a unit of account in your real economy? Because it will get to a point where it's like, why would I hold this if in 30 days it loses 10 percent of its value? We're not there yet necessarily in, the, in like the consumer market, um, but we'll get there. And then what happened? Like, why does it have to, like, why would people choose that? And very quickly, you'll, you'll see like, oh, I can just hold Bitcoin. I mean, at that point, forget about it. Bitcoin's got to be rocket where it's like, oh, it's going to double in money, like every double in value, like every first the dollar, every three, four months. Like, why wouldn't I hold that, you know, or every month even, you know, like there's just going to, there's, there has to be a mad rush to it because like the nature of human beings Right. And this is like the philosophical rabbit hole part of this thing. Right. Like we've learned a long time ago that we're better when we work together. We've just we've learned that like from day one, we we, we hunted in groups. We didn't hunt individually. You know what I mean? So um, when we farm, we farm for a community. Why would we waste all this time farming for ourselves when like we can become 10x, 100x more productive farming for an entire community? Um, and that's the nature of an economy is always seeking to like express this cooperative aspect of being an organized, you know, social hierarchy kind of structure, whatever, but still organized, um, you know, species. Um, so we're always moving towards cooperation. And like when you have inflation, it's the complete opposite. It's all about coercion. It's all about speculation. It's like not about productivity. It's like, how do I get more, more value? How do I get more money? How do I get more money? And um you know, so so I just I I think that like this transition to hyper Bitcoinization is going to be rapid. It's going to be really volatile. It's going to be scary at times, but at the end of the day, I think we climb out of it really fast because I think it's a lot easier to climb out of a of a depressed economy when you're not tr- when when you have no debt to start from. You know what I mean? So like, if fiat currency dies, then all debt dies with it. Because like, why do I want you to pay back my debt when, when you're giving me shit that's like, incredibly worthless? Like, you know, like, I don't need you to pay back that debt. So if all the debt dies, and now we're trying to climb back out of this, like, super unproductive, like depression, um, from a global economic or global financial collapse, then um, I think climbing back out of it is actually going to be a lot easier. And I think it's going to be a lot easier because dep- um, depreciation in this type of ev- environment is rapid, like rapid fast, um, where it gets to a point where, you know, you have this unproductive economy um, and people are going to want things. Um, so they're definitely going to be demanding goods and services. They're also going to be demanding an income because right now there's in this transition to hyper Bitcoinization, like you don't have an income necessarily, you don't have a job, but if you're lucky enough to have some Bitcoin, um, you know, you could do things with that. It's going to be scary to spend it when you don't have an income. Um, so maybe it just incentivizes cooperation more. 
Um, and, you know, my view on the best way to be prepared for something like that as a community and not as an individual is that, um, well, like, let, let's look at the game theory of this. Essentially, let's look at the different game theories as far as credit when you talk about dollars versus Bitcoin. Like, what's an interest rate on a loan? An interest rate on a loan is a measurement of the risk, essentially, uh, to the lender of lending out this money. So if you're somebody who doesn't have a high income, doesn't have a high amount of assets, can't collateralize, this all raises risk. That risk goes up, you get higher interest rates. Um, we have a money printer. So we have banks that have a, an, an essentially an incredibly high abundance of dollars and in uh, an infinite supply for, you know, just to be poetic. And therefore, we're able to just cut interest rates to two, three, four percent. Um, you know, in a Bitcoin world where Bitcoin, it's also, oh, and the money is also depreciating in value over time because of more money printing. So, you know, like the risk of losing those dollars over time uh, becomes lower. And, uh, you know, it's like, whatever, like now I have a mortgage backed security or a commercial bond or whatever that I can just sell this, this like uh, amortization, this payment back to me, this debt. Uh, for cash right now. And that's kind of the system that like keeps it running, right? Without the bonds, I mean, forget about it. It's worthless because interest rates are, are negative yielding compared to inflation. Um, so anyway, in a Bitcoin world and under, with Bitcoin as money, you know, you have this asset that's absolutely scarce. It's climbing in value. You know, to a lender, this creates a really high risk of like, well, if I don't get my Bitcoin back, I'm really lost. Because I'm going to be like that Bitcoin that I don't have back is just going to be lost value, uh, lost accruing value over as you know over the years, like as it becomes more valuable. And so you're going to jack that interest rate up. Now look at it from the borrower side. Okay, I'm going to borrow an asset that's going to climb in value, which means that I you know I'm borrowing this money so that I can invest it in something, which means I don't have this money, and I'm hoping to earn that initial investment back plus some. To, to pay back the interest as well, and then also make a profit. And over time, that Bitcoin is going to be harder to come by because it's climbing in value. And so like, you know, even at a one, two, three percent interest rate, especially in this transitional period, the hyper Bitcoinization, where Bitcoin is rocketing in value, like credit markets are going to dry up completely. Like you'd be a fool to take a loan. You'd be a fool to give a loan. Like you tell me where you're going to find those fools, you know, and then you could have credit. So then what's left? Well, if, if, if we're sitting in this world where production is dying because of this depreciation and, you know, this transition and whatnot, and people don't have jobs, so they're not making an income. Let's say they do have Bitcoin, some of them, and some of them are, are very much more willing now to work for Bitcoin. Um, you know, they're demanding an income, they're demanding goods and services. So how does this work? Well, in my view, the economic model that hopefully we can all find is that if we need to capitalize new businesses and that capitalization needs to lead to income for people. And the only way to do that with credit markets completely drying up is to embrace equity and embrace investment. And the best way, in my opinion, to do that is to create 
a system where, you know, this is where stocks are actually valuable, where shares of stock are actually, um, you know, shares of a business are actually really valuable, uh, where you take every business, you create like a stock exchange, essentially, in every, every local community, every city, where, lo- you know, these people who have Bitcoin don't have a job and are demanding goods and services can walk up to us to an exchange and find every single business that wants to open in their local community to provide those goods and services, you know, offering up essentially a billion shares of their business. And in which case they'll keep, you know, 60%, whatever it is. And you'll invest in that, in that, that equity. And, but the only reason why you'll invest in that equity is for a dividend, you know, so like each share will pay you a certain percentage of profit. And hopefully rather quickly, not like every month, but maybe every week or even every day. And then, you know, the re- so like, let's, ex- let's stop for a second and, and explore that game theory about like, why would you only do it for dividends? Well, if you're not printing money, then the value of that asset of the, the shares of equity of that business likely aren't going to go up in value versus the value of the Bitcoin. So if you take the S&P 500 and you divide it by the Federal Reserve balance sheet, then essentially you have a flat price. And nothing can really climb in value, essentially, versus your money that's absolutely scarce and has global demand. So it's the most, it has the the most like, um, you know, in it's the most in-demand asset with the least amount of supply. So like that's, it's got to be the most valuable asset out there. And so- you're, the only reason why you'd want to invest in equity of a business is not so you can resell it later. It's so that you can hold it. And every day or every week, you can collect a couple of sats or 20 sats or 100 sats or whatever it is. And so if a community comes together, a local community through these exchanges and can invest in a restaurant, a gas station or this and that in such a manner where now you have the freedom to choose your own diversified portfolio yeah, I'm going to go I'm going to go buy this share of equity from this gas station for like 10 sats. And I'll probably not get those 10 sats back for like 2 years. But if it only costs me 10 sats to get it, and every little bit, you know, like every few months I get a satoshi back. Eventually you'll have gotten your original 10 sats back and then you'll keep collecting more. You know, maybe over time it'll be a little bit less, a little bit less because the value of the bitcoins climbing and the economy starting to produce. But like what happens here game theoretically is you create an an economic environment where the majority of people in your society, in your community are making the majority of their cash flow from equity rather than from wages. And so what happens with this? Well, if I'm working for, you know, a a warehouse somewhere and I'm I'm making a, a very minimal wage. But I also own a ton of businesses and I'm generating a cash flow from there. And this productivity of the economy generated from like, you know, being invested in your community produces economic productivity. That economic productivity means more things need to be priced in the same amount of Bitcoin means those prices need to drop means your Bitcoin's more valuable. So like the mentality of how you're going to take care of yourself fundamentally, just based off of game theory, in my opinion, 
suggests that we need to be way more, we need to look at wealth way more as a community thing and way less as an individual thing. Um, I know I said a lot. I don't know if you want to chime in, but it's it's brilliant. I didn't want to interrupt. (laughs) You raised raised so, so, so many good points there. Um, Something I wanted, a couple of things I want to double click is like, firstly, for any new listeners who aren't astute in uh, macroeconomics, interest rates is just the cost of money. How much interest do I have to pay to borrow money? And the way I look at it is, the better the money is, the higher that interest rate is. Because like you, like you said, yes. Blaise, people don't want to lend out their money if it's very valuable and if it's appreciating in value. So right now, I think it's no surprise that interest rates are at 5,000-year lows. Like any list, anyone, any people listening, just think about that for a minute. 5,000 years lows. That's why I always say the money has never been more broken than it is today for the past 5,000 years. I, I think I think the money is fucked. We're on this globally interconnected fiat system where it's a competitive race to the bottom. Whoever can devalue their money the quickest, they get to benefit through making their exports look more attractive because their currency is weaker. Um, so I, I wanted to double click on that point. And then before we yeah. really get into the Bitcoin circular economy and how that's going to play out, I, I would love to get your thoughts. Um, what what price? What's your price, Blege? When do you start lending out your Bitcoin and making investments in companies? Uh, like roughly what kind of price would that be in today's dollars? That's a thought experiment on its own. And when you do start lending out that Bitcoin and making investments, um, what interest rate? Are you charging for that or what interest rate or what kind of return on your capital are you expecting? Yeah. I mean, that's just, <laughs> I mean, there's, I guess it's really like up to the rest of the society um, as far as how I feel about doing that. Um, because again, like, you know, one thing is really true about Keynesian economics is that as your money climbs, you hold on to it more. They like to say you hoard money, but you know, that, that, that basically said what that doesn't include is that over time your economy goes down in price because people aren't spending their money. And so eventually there's this balance that's found because you have enough money as a community to want to spend it. Um, and then productivity climbs and, and so on and so forth. Um, again, like I don't, I would never lend out my Bitcoin for an interest rate. I would never do it. Uh, it's just not something I would ever do. I would definitely, definitely invest my first investment would be local. Um, so again, let's just take it to the tra- you know transitional, uh, you know transitioning from this garbage economy that we're on into a real economy on Bitcoin. Um, I would I would only like I would again because it's so community. Like, why would I want to invest in something that's national or 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 you know multinational when it involves the idea of your entire world has to have a productive economy. Um, and I say that loosely, but like, it's kind of true, right? Like if I want to do business all over the world, then the economy has got to be doing business. What's really beautiful about Bitcoin is you don't need this whole global economy to really be rocking and rolling. Like what are the core things that matter? You need energy. You need to take that energy. You need to make food. Um, you need to, you know, have clean water and like have those kinds of systems. You need to be able to distribute the energy. Um, And then from there, you can like kind of grow, right? Like those are your bare necessities. You need heat, you need all of those things. 
Um, and then it's like, oh, well, yeah, I do need to clothe myself. I need to, you know, like smell differently if I want various shampoos or whatever. But like, my point is, is that like, like, as long as you can find the energy part, like we all have land, um, we're very capable in the, you know, human beings that have discovered ways to like cultivate, honestly, like crappy land and like irrigate it and like turn it into over time, you know, a much more nutritious, you know, topsoil and grow food out of that. Um, so like, I'm looking at my local community and trying to be like, quote unquote, politically active in letting my local community know just how important it is to find a level of sovereignty as a community, starting with energy. Um, and from there, I'll make my investments. So like, all right, so now we have energy sources that we can we can harness locally. So we we know we're good regardless of the rest of the world. Like, great, let's take whatever who, who wants to start businesses and go after that. How much capital do you need to run that? I'll finance, you'll finance. Great, like let's get the community together again, stock exchange in a cooperative way, not gambling, like, oh, I want to sell this right now so I can make more money, but like we need this product. We need this to come. We need to, this to take care of us. So like, let's all financially invest in that. And I'm more willing to do so knowing that out of investing in that, I'm going to generate a cash flow. And so that's the start. Like, and then there's farms, like where's like, I can't tell you price wise. I can tell you where I want to put my investments. It starts with energy. It starts with clean water and it starts with food. That's it. From there, we'll see how the economy does. Um, but the idea is like, yeah, you want to live frugally and like kind of set it up, set your set yourself up and your community up to to deal with these kinds of things. And I think I think that happens fast. Like I think that really happens fast um, because it's going to be chaotic if it doesn't. And I think you know, out of chaos, people find that very quickly. There's a lot of reason to start cooperating and and make things happen. Um, but yeah, nobody's going to lend their money so that you could be this individual business trying to compete in, a, in a, an economy that's not working all while depreciation is happening at a, at a, or deflation is happening at a super high rate. I just don't see it. So yeah, I mean, uh, dollar price, I don't care about dollar price. Like <laughs> I tell people, I tell all the, I tell people all the time, like, yo, do you think it's, do you, you know, if they're normies, right. And they're not into Bitcoin, like, yo, don't you think it's a little too late? And I, I just tell them the same thing. I'm like, bro, as long as there's still a, as long as Bitcoin is still priced in dollars, you're still early. Like, <laughs> could not agree like that's anymore. what we're talking about. That's what we're talking about. Yeah. The, that's me, man. I, I, it, it's hard to put a dollar price on it because like you say, when, when the time comes, you do start lending out your Bitcoin. It, there probably isn't dollars around. So it's hard to kind of conceptualize what that price is. Uh, f- for me, though, I look at the $900 trillion of assets around the world and I say, look, I think everything's been monetized, whether it's the $100 trillion of equity, the $350 trillion real estate market, the $200 trillion bond market, the $100 trillion fiat market. It, once most or 80% of that flows into Bitcoin and Bitcoin's theoretically worth something like, you know, 80 to $100 million a coin in today's dollars before hyperinflation, that's when I start lending it out. But by then, there probably isn't a dollar price. <laughs> so calling it yeah. 80 to $100 million a coin, it's made a little bit irrelevant. Um, yeah. 
but I like this idea. I'd never considered this idea of when you actually are investing your Bitcoin in the future, you're only really doing it on a localized level. I, I think that's very interesting. That sounds a lot like uh, Citadel investing. So the idea behind this, you're only really investing to further the growth and the productivity of your local living area, your local town, your local Citadel, whatever that could be. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, I think investing in, in, you know, multinational corporations, like eventually there'll be businesses that get there. Um, but again, I just, I just think there'll be so much productivity drop that a lot of things, there's going to be abundance of stuff where if you have the time and the motivation to do something with the stuff that we've produced with fiat and no longer really, really want necessarily like, you know, we're creative, we're savvy and, and there's things we can do. But at the end of the day, like, here's the thing, like, let's, let's discuss what happens in a Bitcoin economy when you don't embrace this idea of fractionalizing every business, when you don't embrace the idea of equity, when you embrace the idea of competing interest rates and in markets, right? Because like, that's the other thing that drives an interest rate down, right? Like if you are in a position to actually lend out some Bitcoin, which I find difficult, like you have to compete with other other lenders for uh, you know the opportunity to lend out your Bitcoin and then and then gain an interest. But like you know, like in order for there to be competition, there needs to be an economy that makes it feel worthwhile to invest in that economy. Um, but like you know. Ray Dalio has a, a YouTube video that's great. Uh, it's like a half hour long. And if anybody hasn't seen it, I highly recommend it. But I think it's called The Money Machine. But it's all about um, short-term debt cycles and long-term debt cycles. And, um, you know, if you have debt, it doesn't matter if it's fiat or Bitcoin. Like, there's going to be a debt cycle because you borrow money, you raise demand for, you know, whatever it is that you're borrowing money for. Um, and therefore... It, you know, you get inflation for at least that specific thing. And if you do it on an economic scale, you get inflation everywhere. Um, and then you have to pay down the debt. And so you get deflation. And it's like, I don't know why people want it, want that economy. Like, why do you want that? Why do you want, is it because you want to speculate on increasing and decreasing markets? Like, I'm tired of looking at, at you know, investments and product and, and my financial future based off of this idea of capitalizing off of somebody else's demise or gain, uh, it seems rather, you know, disingenuous. And I've never been that type of person. Again, like being raised on hospitality and service, it just doesn't fit, doesn't sit well with me. Um, so like, yeah, you know, I'm in Bitcoin because I think that the game theory, you know, moves in that direction as well as just natural human instinct. So long as we have a proper accounting system because we have sound money, naturally moves in this direction of like wanting to help each other out, wanting to, you know, support and like motivate people and be cooperative. Um, you know, like I, I just like, if you have, if you have like markets to lend out in, I think you're going to see, you're going to see an instability in price action moving way more in, uh, into deflation. And you'll you'll have a you'll get volatility in these in this um, economy that might you know I think over time you know it's not going to be as extreme as fiat, but like you'll have these ebbs and flows 
that in my opinion, like just kind of slow down the overall productivity of the economy and the overall success of the economy over time. Whereas if the overwhelming majority of people embrace this model where we're all investing into like, let's really look at this, right? Like we're all investing into our businesses. And so now, as I said before, like you're, the majority of people are making the bulk of their money off of dividends and cash flow paid out from owning equities or owning shares of businesses. So now when you're going to work and someone's like, oh, we need to, we need to cut your wages because A, deflation, which is still a thing like um, in a Bitcoin world, right? And B, like, you know, like the other side of that is you cost me money and like, I want to make more profit. And this is where technological innovations come into play, right? So like we have a whole half of this political spectrum that completely hates, um, you know, automation and, and robotics and stuff like that because it takes jobs away. And there's something to be said about that. Like it takes jobs away, but it also takes away costs for the company. So if it takes away costs, then as you'll know, if you read, you know, the price of tomorrow, um, that, you know, like technology is inherently deflationary. So if we can move the majority of a community into owning, uh, into having the bulk of their income come from profits, right, instead of wages, then they're less likely to care about their wage issue and raise a political war off of like, quote unquote, minimum wage needing to climb or whatever nonsense, right? Um, and it, that'll free up the economy to fully embrace like innovating and automating where required. Like, could you imagine farming today if all of a sudden you took away every tractor and every single bit of technology, except for like handheld tools, and then said, all right, farms, like you got to hire tens to hundreds of thousands of people to now farm your farms, like collectively as an industry. Like how much more does the cost of food climb in that situation? And does it, is there like tons, like it's like immeasurable. And so do you really... Like people don't ever talk about that. It's like, oh, okay. You, oh, you're a man that McDonald's wants to create like an automatic frying machine so it could fry its French fries. And that makes you aggravated because like, oh, that takes a job away, but you don't care that the food industry does it because, or like the, you know, the farm, you never, I don't hear anybody ever complaining about tractors on a farm, like harvesting massive amounts of food that feed this incredibly large population of human beings. Like, it's important that we embrace technology. It's important that we embrace innovation. It's important that we embrace cooperation and like get away from speculation, get away from coercion, get away from debt, get away from wealth division. Like these things are so fundamentally important. And like, that's if we want to go to Mars, like if we want to be a, a species that can outlast this entire solar system, then these are the types of steps that we have to take forward because there's no way we can get to it where like we still live this. I think you would call it like neoliberal feudalism is kind of like what mm. we, we have now where people just pay rent. And that's the same thing as paying taxes back when there was lords and stuff. You know what I mean? Like, 
I couldn't yeah. agree more. I, I think our civilization is actually doomed if we don't adopt Bitcoin. I, I think like we are trending towards a, a really scary, scary, scary world where everybody just becomes a, a leech off the government and everybody's given some minimum wage job that doesn't need to be there just because they, the government and the nanny state needs to keep them busy. Um, I, I love how you said we need to embrace technology. Like I think the more, the more our world kind of moves into the digital age, the more and more things around us are going to be digitized. More things are going to be automated. More and more things are going to continue to get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And that's the premise of The Price of Tomorrow, Jeff Booth's great book. Everybody should definitely go and read that one. It's just saying you can't have an inflationary monetary system that needs ever-expanding debt and ever-increasing prices when it's fighting all of these technological forces that are making things cheaper. People just, it's such a simple concept. And I I, I just think like Bitcoin fixes this. Bitcoin is a deflationary money. And as we move into this digital age where things are going to become more and more deflationary, you need a deflationary money to match that. And that's, it, it just makes simple sense. Yeah. But, you know, and, and it does make simple sense, but there's also things to consider and like um, in the <sighs> price stability is the target. It's not really deflation or inflation. It's price stability. It's, is that something that's actually achievable? No, not really. But what does that really mean? It means you're trying to find a balance between deflationary forces and inflationary forces. I, I actually... So I, yeah. I think I was having a, I did an interview with Knut Svan Holm. Um, he's the author of many great books in Bitcoin. Probably uh, the most recent one was Infinity Divided by 21 Million. And if you haven't yeah. talked to him, I think you should talk to him because you guys are both yeah. given this idea of hyper-Bitcoinization a lot of thought. But he kind of makes the point that Bitcoin, when we're on a Bitcoin standard, the price of Bitcoin could be appreciating so rapidly that it might actually be too volatile to use as a unit of account. Like he's saying, look, if Bitcoin's the global money and if the economy's growing by 5, 10, 15, even 25 or 30% a year, that means the price of goods and services is falling at 5, 10, 15 or 25% a year. And he kind of like jokingly makes the point that maybe we need to price the economy in liters of milk or, you know, something that's less volatile than Bitcoin. Yeah. Um, what, what, See, do you, what do you think? Do you think Bitcoin with the unit of account? I disagree with that. I just, I think like, all right, great. You have us. So <laughs> you're raising multiple points. I'm going to try and keep this as coordinated as possible. <laughs> but basically what he's referring to is now you need to have a store of value that's separate from your medium of exchange and your unit of account, essentially, um, in the same way that we created dollars backed by gold. So <laughs> I, don't, I don't really know how that works because, again, you're going to have something that's on sale anyway, all the time. And the only thing that you do when you, when you, pull it, when you bring in this other unit that is a quote-unquote derivative of something that actually has value, so when you bring in a dollar that's backed by gold during the gold standard, well, then you have an option to either own gold or the dollar. And even though in a bank, it might be tradable one-to-one or whatever the, you know, whatever the exchange rate is, like there's, there's like, you saw it in, in England. Um, I think it was 
I think it was right before World War One. It might have been before World War Two and right after World War One. But like there was like they had reintroduced the gold standard and it created like a real product, like an economic shock and the productivity dropped. And, um, you know, it basically like <laughs> you, you when you separate a medium of exchange and from the unit from the uh, store of value, then you have you have this you have the ability to move into and out of one. And so if your if your economy stops producing or slows down, then you may want to move out of the dollar and into gold or you know vice versa, right? Because the value of the value of your medium of exchange is predicated on the productivity of your economy, right? Like here are the four forces that I think go into inflation and deflation. You have your money supply. Increase your money supply, you get inflation. You have your energy supply. Increase your energy supply, you have deflation. You have economic productivity. Increase your economic productivity. Your money needs to be stretched thinner to account for that productivity. You have deflation. And then the other thing is monetary velocity, which is very much co correlated to productivity. And the more you have monetary velocity, the more you have people making money, meaning you have income, meaning that 12 month future you know, what I'm making in 12 months or the future, your current assets climbs, you have inflation, right? So you have two deflationary forces and two inflationary forces that are going in to find this price stability. And so if you have, the question really comes down to how do you increase, like if you increase economic productivity, you're sort of fundamentally increasing monetary velocity, right? So you know, like, oh, you need something, I'm going to give you money to make something for me. You know, like that's, that's monetary velocity, money changed hands, that's economic productivity. So one to one, that's sort of like deflation and inflation in the same sort of transaction. So then the question then becomes, well, how do they become two independent variables? Right? Like, how is monetary velocity different from productivity? And it's kind of has to do with capitalization. Um, and, and, you know, you could have people that work for you and therefore every transaction you have to pay more people. And so that kind of is more monetary velocity, right? Compared to the same amount of productivity um, or the other way in a sense uh, is to have more equitable owners of a business. Like I've been sort of preaching, right? Like if I have a share of, if everybody has shares of equity, right? Then every time a transaction goes down, like let's say you buy dinner at a restaurant and, you know, that restaurant is owned by 10,000 people. Well, then fundamentally that transaction, the profits from that are going to be divided up to with 10,000 owners, you know? So like you're increasing monetary velocity uh, without necessarily increasing productivity. And so to me, that's a way that you can raise inflation versus the deflationary forces of a growing economy. So to me, it's not about saving money, saving money, saving money. It's about investing money, investing money, investing money, so that when you wanna save your money, like you just make money, right? Like, let's say you wanna get a house in this, in this world where, you know, again, there's a lot of energy and resources that go into a house. So no matter what way you cut it, they're expensive. Even if they're overpriced right now in a fiat economy, it takes a lot to, to make a house, right? And so 
if you have this environment, this economy where everybody's got shares of businesses, and as people are spending, they're also gaining income back because of the monetary velocity that's flowing through the economy, then you know that like you could get to a point per se where, hey, if I just wait seven days, like I'll have X amount of do- X amount of Satoshis or Bitcoin uh, coming to me from all of my portfolio. You also have an extended portfolio, which you could share and represent um, to people as like your sort of credit worthiness, right? So like, oh, I want to get a house. Um, I can't get a 3% loan, but maybe I can get a 15% loan. Um, I don't want a 15% loan over 30 years because I'll be screwed. Bitcoin will be climbing in value over 30 years. I'll be done for. So let me come up with like half the money for this house, right? And uh, I'll borrow the rest. But borrowing the rest is still probably going to be hard to come by. Now, here's the funny thing is, I want to buy this house. You need an architect, you need a contractor, right? And an engineer, essentially, to build it. That, that architect may have started their business on loan, on equitable, you know, at the stock exchange. I sold off 25% of my business as an architect to a bunch of people to pay for me to go to school or to pay for my office or to pay for this or to pay for that. Okay, and then I'm going to start earning income from from the sale of houses, essentially. Let's just call it simple. And then you have an engineer and a contractor who's like building these homes and they have costs, obviously, but they're also owned by 10,000 people in the community who are like super happy that you're producing homes that they want because you're generating an income for them and you're increasing the productivity of your local economy, which is deflationary. And then their income that they're gaining off of your productivity because of profits that are being distributed through the equity that they own is inflationary. So like, instead of going to a bank to borrow the other 50% to buy this house, you're just going to lend me the house, right? So like, I, I gave you the money that basically paid for the construction of the house. Now I owe you all the profits. And so over the next five years, not 30, the bulk of that money is going to be front loaded because over time, my portfolio will sort of pay me a little bit less and a little bit less of Bitcoin as deflation takes hold, right? Like you want deflation to be like two, 3%. You don't want it to be 30, 40%. 30, 40% is a volatile economy. 30, 40% is nobody produces, everybody saves. Then all of a sudden people produce. You introduce speculation because there's this volatility. It's like, you don't want that. So like, let's just fractionalize everything. Everybody can earn like dividends from hopefully what is like a decentralized stock exchange that's built on top of the lightning network. So that like literally every day you can keep collecting your dividends and have cash flow. Like, why can't that work? (laughs) Like to me, I think theoretically it makes sense. I'm sure I'm not, you know, I haven't spent my entire life diving into the forces involved in this. And it's highly theoretical because we live in a world that only shows us what it's like when it's completely saturated in debt. So it's hard to kind of make those measurements. But why can't that work? I don't understand that. You know, it's like, and then what happens over time when, when as you go to spend and the whole economy and like everybody's got like a pretty diversified portfolio, the economy's producing, you know, oh, I go to work 20 hours a week. 
I actually enjoy my job because it's not stressful. And I just do it to help the business that I own, like 20, you know, that like 24, 20% of my portfolio owns, you know what I'm saying? And like embracing technology, innovation, you know, productivity, climbing, deflation keeps going. And so like, all right, deflation keeps going. Instead of it incentivizing you saving, it should kind of, it also kind of incentivizes you spending. It's like you can afford more. So like, what's the part of it that makes you want to spend rather than save? Well, I think the part of it is whether you have an income or not. If you have an income, you're going to spend it. If you don't, you're going to save it. So like, let's just give everybody incomes by giving them the freedom to invest in literally like billions of a business, all, all local first, and then spread out, you know, Hey, you have the freedom. This is a capital. This is a free market, um, you know, capitalism invest in whatever you want to invest in. You want to put all your Bitcoin in one basket and go high risk. And maybe you could gain from like a business that has some game changing technology going on and can like make a ton of profit. Go for it. You want to be safe. Um, because you're a young person still figuring out the world. Hey, go to your local stock exchange. There's, you know, 7,000 businesses in here. Why don't you just buy an index of every single one of them? And so like, as your city is like producing, you'll just make money. I, like, I don't know, like, tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> it makes sense. It makes sense to me. Um, I, I didn't think anyone could be wrong. Uh, speculating how hyper-Bitcoinization is going to look because it's something we've never seen before. Like the human species, we've never, ever, 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 ever used the money that is absolutely finite and absolutely scarce. And then, and then you layer in the other fact that we've just been wandering around in the woods and in the dirt for the past hundreds of thousands of years. And it's only really been in the past 20 to 30 years that technology has been surrounded by us and we've been able to communicate with people globally uh, via the internet. That's only really popped up in the past 20 years. I think the fact yeah. that now you, you can transact with anyone around the world at an, at an instant, you can send them Satoshis on the lightning network instantly. I, 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 think I, 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 I don't have, a, I don't think you can be wrong speculating how no, hyper-Bitcoinization will look like. I think the lightning network is as, revolutionary as the Bitcoin network. Um, I know it's kind of extreme to say that, but it is the reason why we don't need to separate the medium of exchange from the store of value. Like it, we don't need a derivative. We don't need something that's backed by what's what everybody else really wants. We need to learn how to use this ability to move this money at any point in time instantly and for essentially free and make that happen a lot because at the end of the day if we do embrace this type of economy where everybody's got a share of like whatever business they want and vice versa you know like you could get to a point where it's just like money is like in motion like money is just constantly 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 in motion and like that, that's actually like really awesome, you know? And like, as people save, people get deflation. And like, I, I just, I, I don't know, man. Like, I, I think that the lightning network and the ability to move Bitcoin rapidly um, is the inflationary force that means we don't need a derivative 
for the medium of exchange. It means officially, without question, we do not need to embrace this quote unquote artificial form of inflation. I love that. That's my opinion. That's a big call. The Lightning Network is as big of an invention as Bitcoin. I like that. I really do like that. I think a lot of people are sleeping on the Lightning Network as well. Um, Yeah. Blej, I think I've kept you for well over an hour now, so I want to maybe fire a couple of rapid-fire questions at you before we wrap this one up. Um, I like it. Let's do it. We we talked a lot about uh, decentralization and the importance of people moving away from globalization. And on a Bitcoin standard, they'll be more focused on investing in their kind of local economy. Um, do you, which, which countries do you think are going to do the worst in this transition to a more decentralized world? And which countries do you think would do the best or even just areas around the world? It doesn't have to be a specific country. Um, I think it kind of flips the script, right? I think that like, I think that like third world nations that are like forced into this like position where every individual needs to sort of fight for themselves and, you know, sort of take care of themselves. Not that they don't have economies and whatnot, but they're very much more capable of living off the earth. Whereas people from the first world are way more capable of living off the economy. Right. Um, So like, I think, I think that that, yeah, like I, I mean, obviously El Salvador is ahead of the game because they're already like running an economy priced in Bitcoin, and so like as this whole thing occurs, they're just going to see everybody's got way more money to spend, um, and they have an economy that's already circulating Bitcoin, so they have that income that's going to make them want to spend rather than save till no end. Um, so yeah, I mean, I would I would say like, you know. A region of the world that I think is going to be dominant over the rest of the world is going to be South America in the next 15 to 20 years. I think they're more primed. I think they're fed up with like IMF debt. I think they're all defaulting. I think they're ready to make the transition following El Salvador's lead. I think Africa is kind of like there as well. I think the further away from this sort of silver spoon of the money printer that you are, the more uh, primed for success and this transition to hyper bitcoinization so yeah like if if i was a betting man i would put my money on uh on south america being sort of the the global superpower as a whole um in the next 20 years i love that we that's strange we actually haven't talked in probably months i haven't been on space as much and you know, so we haven't really had a conversation on spaces, but that's exactly how I see the world. I've I've pushed my chips into the middle of the table and I've left Australia and do not plan on going back. And I plan on staying in the continent that I am in the moment. So that's America, uh, North yeah. America at the moment, the greatest country in the world. And whenever they boot me out and try to deport me, I'm going to go hide out in some of these Latin American citadels because I think South America... I 100% agree with you. I think they're going to benefit the most from this kind of sovereign individual playbook unfolding. And I think for anyone listening, I did a whole podcast on that. Um, I think I was talking about why I left Australia for Mexico um, just a month or two ago. So anyone listening and they like this conversation, head on over and you can check that one out. Um, Latin America, I'm bullish. I'm very bullish on Latin America. Um, I love it. Last rapid fire question for you, my friend. Uh, 2030. You look around the world in 2030, what do you see? Is there still fiat? Is there still um, a massive nanny state? Um, do you think we still got fiat in 2030 or we hyper-Bitcoinized? 
Oh, and we're way ahead of that. I mean, I think by 2025, <laughs> I've been, I've been telling you now, like I, I 2025, I don't see why, like if there's fiat floating around, it's like just gaslighting and like, you know, you're an idiot for, for actually like even accepting it in my opinion. Cause I think, I think federal governments are just not going to have the ability to fund enforcement as their currency dies. And so yeah, that's the compound effect that has, has my, I don't, know, I don't care. I mean, I haven't been shying away from it. Like as, and as you witnessed what happened in Canada and you see with this Russian war and now there's a war on energy and there's currency wars going on. Like, please, if, if, in, if the year 2025, the dollar is still around, like I'll be surprised. That's, that's quite literally what I think. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I hope that as far as 2030 goes, I think 2030 is going to be a blissful, beautiful period in time, you know, where I think, you know, five years was, is really, to me, would be plenty of time in a hyper Bitcoinized unit of account <laughs> um, that you get to a point where, you know, we've kind of figured it out and, and the game theory pushes us naturally into this, into this realm, you know, into this this cooperative realm that we've really never really fully embraced as a, as a civilization, like ever. And um, yeah, I think it'll be beautiful. I think, uh, I think you'll see a drastic reduction in wealth division. I think you'll see a massive increase of like home ownership and people owning their own properties instead of renting. I think you'll see a drastic decrease in, in at least in the United States, like services and service industry, because I think the majority of them exist specifically because of all the manufacturing occurs outside of the world, which is a product of Triffin's dilemma. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I just I think we'll I think we'll be embracing robotics at a, at a rate that'll be insane. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I hope that, you know, the, the developers out there in the, in the lightning world and in the Bitcoin world look at a decentralized, I guess, layer on top of lightning um, that allows for any business anywhere to just automatically, you know, chop their business up into however many shares, put however many of them up for sale. And, you know, if everybody, if that business is transacting on a, on a, you know, an using digital money, using a, a software, you know, as their point of sales that calculates for every transaction, then like, you don't need accountants. And, you know, right off the bat, you could be funded and people who are funding you could feel completely and utterly safe knowing that it's a completely trustless network. And I think that those three networks together, Bitcoin, Lightning, and whatever you want to call this last one that fractionalizes businesses, that that is the dream that is the that is where you know we find heaven on earth i love that brother i love that i could not agree more that's such a good night to end the podcast on um 2025 it's rare that i get to meet somebody who's just as bullish as i am but i i really do agree i think things have really escalated since we hit that inflection point of 2020 and I think um, just the rate of things that are changing. Oh God, we could talk for hours and hours and hours um, for a whole nother podcast about all of this. Um, the Blege, thank you so much for finally coming on, my friend. I've I've absolutely loved this conversation, and I don't want to keep you any longer. Um, where can the listeners find you? 
Where can the listeners reach out, point them to anywhere that you want to point them towards? Yeah. Um, so as you said, my Twitter handle is uh, the Blege. So T-H-E-B-L-E-J. Um, you know, I'm not really hiding my identity. My name's Adam. Uh, I work on a bunch of different projects. I'm a photographer and, and, and whatnot. If you're really interested in following what I've really focused on as far as personally, um, I started a Mets fan page. I'm a New Yorker. I'm a huge Mets fan. And, um, it's called, uh, faces of Mets fans. I run it on Instagram and, uh, basically my mission on this project, which I started in 2018 is to connect Mets fans to their photos and stories. Um, and it's been a, it's been a huge success and it's actually really, really taking off as of recent. So, um, I'm kind of putting a lot of, uh, a lot of eggs in this particular basket as well as my Bitcoin basket and, um, seeing what I can make happen before we hit this huge monetary reset. I love it. I love it. I love it. I'm bullish on Bitcoiners, bro. So I'm sure you'll kick ass in that little venture you're engaging in. Um, the Blege, thank you so much for coming on, my friend. I'm going to cut that one there. Um, I hope the listeners, um, I hope you're having a good day and I'll see all you guys next time. Thank you, man. Have a good one. No, thank you, brother. That was awesome. That was great. <laughs> that was really, really good. Yeah, awesome.